Okay, let's open our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, and we'll continue our study of these first two verses. We began looking at verse 1 last week. It's really connected to verse 2, and also a standalone thought that we'll see the connection and the independence of as we study them. In order to put this rightly in our minds, I want to begin the context and go back to verse 31 of chapter 4 and read through chapter 2 because they are connected with the significant phrase, just as. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning at verse 31. Paul says, Let all bitterness, wrath, and anger, and clamor, and slander be put away from you, along with all meanness or malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Therefore, be Imitators of God as beloved children. And walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. We have often reminded ourselves of the old adage that the most important three words of real estate are location, 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 right? We kind of picked up on that in our study of hermeneutics or biblical principles of interpretation. And we say often that the first, most, first three most important words in interpreting the Bible are what? Context, context, context. In the same vein, what would you say are the first three most important words in the development of a person's character? Think about that. What are the most important principles in changing in the development of your character? Can I suggest example, example, example? What we see is important in who we become. You've heard things are more caught than taught. Well, that's true when it comes to becoming. We typically want to become the people, like the people that we admire the most. A phenomenon in the 1990s got momentum and began in youth ministries in America and became quite a thing among believers and evangelicals. The movement was, about, movement was about the phrase, what would Jesus do? Remember that? There were bracelets, WWJD, that people were wearing, and T-shirts, and it was printed on just about everything that you could screen print, I think. The whole idea behind the WWJD, what would Jesus do movement, was the simple idea that Christianity is about following the example of Jesus. And it wasn't a bad principle. I mean, if you knew what Jesus would do in any given situation and did that, that seems like a very good principle to apply. 
following the example of Jesus of Nazareth, however, far more than a cultural fad, it's the heart of the passage today. And may I suggest, I think that following the example of Jesus is probably the summation and the foundation for what it means to be a Christian. Peter wrote this, 1 Peter 2.21, For you've been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. So Christ left us an example. Peter says, follow his example. Be like him. But understand this. If you desire to answer and apply the question, what would Jesus do? (laughs) You have to know what Jesus did. In other words, you have an affinity and an attraction and an acumen and a knowledge of, of the scriptures, of the gospels, of how Jesus lived, of how he responded, of what he said and what he didn't say, his wisdom, his words. I'm reminded of John 17, 3, the beginning of the high priestly prayer, when Jesus said, This is eternal life, that they, believers, may know you, the only true God, and know Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life is knowing Christ, which presupposes a few things, that he's alive, he's not dead in a grave, It presupposes that he can be known. How can we know him? Through what's revealed about him in in the gospel record and explained about him in the New Testament. Familiar words regarding this that we all know well as believers. Philippians 3, verse 8, following. Paul says, more than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of what? Knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord For whom I have suffered the loss of all things, count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ, be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know Him, the power of His resurrection, the fellowship of His sufferings, being conformed to His death. So Paul said, I want to know him so that I can be like him, which is all about imitating him. I think it's fair to say that the Apostle Paul's greatest ambition was to have intimate knowledge of Jesus so he could imitate the life of Christ and enjoy that resemblance to Christ. And we can learn from that. Do you have as Your greatest ambition, can we say, is any ambition, is a part of your ambition, to know Christ so that you can imitate Him and enjoy the resemblance to Him. In our text, Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, Paul speaks of the same thing. But here he aims that aspiration not as a reflection of what he wants, but he tells us to do the same. As we noted last week, there's a context here, and we're in the middle of this context there's actually two bookends that, are, that summarize the life of a believer, of a Christian, and it's found in the phrase in verse 32, chapter 4, verse 32, and chapter 5, verse 2, just as, just like. Forgiving each other, just like, just as God. 
Verse 2 of chapter 5, walk in love just as Christ. See those two just as is? Is that a plural? The point is that our internal and external lives are to imitate, be like, be just as God in character, in his moral character. So this is the Christmas season. We're talking about God becomes flesh, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Our God is Emmanuel, God with us. So there's no distinction and distinctive, we'll see this more in a moment, between imitate God, be just as God forgiving, and walk in love. In fact, we're to forgive just as God, in verse 32, walk in love just as Christ, which all is wrapped up in the the middle of that sandwich we looked at last week, be imitators of God. Be like him. Be just like him. Be just as him. So here in 5.2, we're commanded to live a life of love. Live a life of love. Walk in love just as Christ loved us. Pretty simple, right? We're going to dial this in and understand it, what it means to follow the example of Jesus in walking in love. We'll find together two applications for living a life of love. Living a life of love. Two applications. The first is very simple. It's just to do it, to obey. Obey the command to live in love. It's a very simple imperative. It's a very simple command. Verse 1, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. At the beginning of chapter 4, uh, we met a concept that finds its way throughout the rest of the letter. It actually stitches the rest of the final three chapters together. And it's the metaphor, the idea of walking. He begins, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, chapter 4, verse 1, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. That's the launching imperative of what to do, how to be, and how to live in the final three chapters. Walk in love here, he says in chapter 2. It's interesting to see how the apostle uses the, the idea of walking in this whole letter. It's really fascinating. In verses 1 to 16 of chapter 4, walk in unity. Live in unity. In 4, 17 to 32, walk in holiness. In five verses, chapter 5, verse 7 to 14, walk in light. Walk as children of light. And in chapter 5, verse 15 to 6, 9, walk in wisdom, especially with your family. It's interesting, walk, 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 and then you get to chapter 6, verse 10, and he changes it from walk to stand. Stand in spiritual warfare. In the middle of all this is the first six verse, are the first six verses of chapter 5, and it's walk or live in love. The idea of walk is his metaphor for living Walk in love is to live in love. Parallel passage in Colossians chapter 3, verse 14. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Put it on. Walk in unity. Put on love. Walk in love. This is as profound as it is actually counterintuitive and life-altering. It's the word agape. I collated three different Greek dictionaries and came up with Four simple synonyms for the word agape love. Are you ready? Esteem, have affection for, 
be concerned about, and care about. That's what it means to love. To esteem, to have affection for, to be concerned about, and to care about. That's agape love. Walk in that. Walk in this disposition of esteeming others, being affectionate for them, being concerned about them, and caring for them. How important is this? Our, our friend, Dr. Honer, who has guided us so much through this study, says this, quote, Walk in love is the summary theme of all the exhortations in Ephesians and in the Bible. I love that. So you summarize the whole Bible's commands by walk in love. That's a big statement from one of my favorite theologians, and I think he's right. Another commentator, S.M. Baugh, says it similarly. All the positive injunctions Christians must heed that Paul specifies in this epistle may be summarized as actions motivated by love, esteem, affection, concern, care. Remember how Jesus summarizes the entire law, all the expectations of God? One conversation, he's being debated with, and they send one of their theologians, a teacher, to ask him what's going on. He says, teacher, to Jesus, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Now, this... Just understand what he's doing here. He's trying to trap Jesus. Because whatever Jesus says, he's probably going to call an audible and say, well, what about this? What about that? What's the greatest commandment in the law? And it seems if you could obey the greatest commandment in the law, you got the rest falling in line. Jesus says to him, here it is. You shall love, there's our word, love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is is the great and foremost commandment. Now, you can see where they would probably start conniving and say, okay, well, we're going to say what about? Before they can do that, he says this. The second is like it. They said, what's the greatest commandment? He gave them the greatest, and then he got number two in there as well. The second is like it. Here's our word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, I think they would be tempted to say, well, we got number three for you, and so he covers number three and four and five and all the rest. On these two commandments, loving the Lord your God and loving your neighbor as yourself, on these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. That's an incredible statement. Think about what he's saying. The every verse in the Old Testament, and I would suggest the New Testament as well, every single verse, every single command, every admonition, every exhortation can find itself into one of two categories. It helps you learn how to love God better or helps you love, know how to love others better. It's love. Exactly as Paul said, walk in love just as Christ loved. And Jesus actually taught that all of the commands of the scriptures find themselves in loving. To the Romans, Paul wrote in Romans 13, owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. 
In other words, your only obligation to others is to love them. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. Exactly what Jesus said. If you've learned to love, you have fulfilled the law. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there's any other commandment, it's summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. That's a big statement. Love is the fulfillment of God's requirements called the law. <laughs> Listen to the simplicity of this. You, you want a, a verse to make your life first, sort of underline or highlight? 1 Corinthians 16, 14. Let all that you do be done in love. Let all that you do comprehensively be done in love. Sounds simple enough, but what does it mean to walk in love? What does that look like? We see a description of this in a passage you know well. We usually hear at weddings, 1 Corinthians 13. And let me say that it's a great application of how you should love your husband or love your wife. It's a great application of loving a spouse. But that's not what it's about in the passage. It's not about romantic love extended into relationships. It's about Christian love extended into relationships. Listen to it from that perspective. 1 Corinthians 13, 4. Love is patient. As long as, as, long as suffering, it suffers wrongly long. Love is kind. Big Greek word that means it's nice. If you're loving, you're a nice person. It's not jealous. It doesn't want what is not yours because it all belongs to the Lord. Love does not brag. It's not arrogant. Love doesn't talk a lot about himself or herself. It doesn't act unbecomingly, inappropriately. It does not seek its own. It's selfless. We'll come back to that. It's not provoked. It does not take into account a wrong suffered. Literally, it doesn't keep little chicken scratches for things that people have done wrong against you. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness. It's holy. It rejoices with the truth. It bears all things. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. Love endures all things. Love never fails. Look, that's wonderfully applied in a Christian marriage at a Christian wedding. But it's more than that. This is how we act toward others. And Paul does not allow for this to be merely a modification of our disposition toward others. He doesn't just say, walk in love and that's good. Be a loving person. That's not enough. It's a deliberate imitation of our Savior, which takes us to our second application of living a life of love. Obey the command. You got to do it. You got to say you're going to do it. You got to lean into it. Secondly, imitate the comparison to the greatest love. There are two parts of this. There's the command, walk in love, and there's a comparison, love like Christ. Walk in love, live, make your life full of love. And then the phrase, just as. Just as who? Just as Christ also loved you. Some manuscripts say loved us. It's indifferent. Just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering 
and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Here's our phrase, just as. Just as we imitate God, we forgive like God forgave in verse 32. Now we live, we walk in love just as Christ in 5.2. By the way, again, there's no difference between these two since Jesus is God in human flesh. To forgive as God. And by the way, it says God in Christ has forgiven you. So that's all kind of wonderfully compressed trinitarianly in, in the forgiveness And now it's walk in love just as Christ also loved you. And we know God loved us as well. So it's all wonderfully conflated in Trinitarian love. Now, mark this. The key to learning how to live, how to walk in love is to walk or live like Jesus lived. Is that fair to say? I mean, that's the whole of this comparison. Walk in love just as Christ loved. Live in love just as Christ lived. When you examine all the admonitions to love, we're going to look at a few. When you examine the life of Christ, I think you can boil it down to this. The key to love is selflessness. You can say it this way. When you look at the definition of love and the examples of love, the opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is selfishness. Because love is the other's orientation of life. The opposite is to be self-oriented in life. I mean, we naturally love and care for those who love us, who appreciate us, who like us, those who are nice and kind to us, those who we think deserve our love. It's easy to love. So when he says, walk in love just as Jesus loved us, we have to pause and remember that Jesus doesn't love like we love and God doesn't love like like we love. Greater love, John 15, 13, has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. Now, Jesus is speaking that in the context of talking to his disciples who were his friends, and that's wonderful. It's true. But he goes beyond that in Romans 5. How does Christ love? How does God love? This is, this is stunning when we study this in Romans 5, in fact, let me, let me just confess that in five years of studying the book of Romans, no passage had greater impact on the way I thought to change my, my perspective on the gospel more than this passage. That's Romans chapter 5, verse 6 and following. It's amazing, stunning. It's, it's indescribable. Paul says in Romans 5, 6, for while we were still helpless, that's an incredible verse, phrase rather, helpless, unable to aid ourselves to be saved, to get saved, to be justified, to be sanctified, we were helpless. While we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ fixed it. How did he do that? He died for the ungodly. In one verse, we're called two things, helpless and ungodly. Anti-God, literally. When we were in that state, Christ died for the ungodly. That's an exact 
exact reflection of what Paul says. He gave himself up for us as an offering and a sacrifice in Romans 5, excuse me, in Ephesians 5 too. But he goes on. He gives the famous illustration for one would hardly die for a righteous man. This is back in Romans chapter 5, verse 7. One will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. And he honors the fact that, that in, a, in a, an act of kindness, someone would die for someone, a friend, a good man, a good woman. You see someone you know, someone you care about, you see a car coming, you push them out of the way, you receive the blow of the car, you die in that act of kindness. He's, he's, he says that's honorable. That's a kindness. That is the way, the best way a human could die for another human, love another human, is to die for them. They says you usually do that for a good man. You're not inclined to do that for someone you hate or who hates you. Two words. That's an honorable way for someone to love by dying for them. But God, that's cra crazy language. But God doesn't do that. Think about this. God doesn't offer such a sacrifice for a good man. What does he do? But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were not a good man, not a righteous man, what does it say? While we were yet sinners, yet sinners, Christ died for us. Love just as Christ loved. He loved sinners. Oh, it goes on. Much more than having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? He not only didn't die for a good man, he died for his enemies. Don't miss the fact that in, back to Ephesians 5, 2, in order to understand the love of God and the love of Christ, he goes back to the gospel, to the atonement. Just as Christ also loved you or us, and how did he do that? <sighs> he gave himself up for us. There are two dimensions of this phrase, gave himself, that we must consider. First, he willingly gave himself up. The book of Hebrews, it says so. He offered himself up for sin, Hebrews 7, 27. He offered himself up as the sacrifice, as the atonement, as the substitute for those who would believe. He offered himself. He did it willingly. Just think about this. At any moment during those final days of Jesus' life, he could have escaped. In fact, he tells the disciples, don't you know, I could have called angels to come and rescue me, but he didn't. He gave himself up. He could have escaped and he didn't. He was even mocked for that on the cross. His enemies were saying he saved others. Why can't he save himself? And he could have, but he didn't. He didn't. Add that perspective to this, though. 
For God so loved the world, the Father, that he, what's the word? Gave. He gave his only begotten Son, (laughs) that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Told you before, and it's worth telling you again. I, I, this is my favorite group of people. I love my friends at Mission Road Bible Church. Love you so much. But I've thought about this before. If 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 I were unspeakably given the choice, you can either save your friends at Mission Road, or you can save your one of your boys, your your sons. You'd be in a lot of trouble. <laughs> Love my sons. See how different God's love is than ours? He gave his son for wicked, ungodly, helpless, sinning enemies like us. It points us to our personal experience of being loved by Christ and that he gave himself up for us, just as Christ also loved you, how? And gave himself up for us. Romans 8, 32, so precious. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how shall he not also with him freely give us all things? He gave himself, Hebrews 727, God gave him freely as well. As we've seen for our whole study of Ephesians, Christian conduct in this particular application, love and behavior, cannot be separated from Christian doctrine or good theology. Say it this way, immaturity in attitude or immaturity in living are always related to immaturity in understanding and knowing biblical doctrine. Those are always related. Now, how do we love? Why do we love? How do we walk in love? This is worth a field trip, so let's take it together. Turn over to 1 John chapter 4. If you're smart, and I know you are, you probably have been singing this song in your head since we started this. Your kids know this song. They sing it in Sunday school all the time. I will not sing it for you, but I will talk about this verse. 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. Beloved, let us what? Love one another. 1 John 4, 7. For love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. We can stop right there. Walk in love is evidence that you know God, that you're born of God. And if you are a lover of others, even if they don't deserve it, you are proving that you you know and love God. He goes the opposite. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. If you have an intimate relationship with the living God who abides with you, who lives in you, and you're not loving, you don't know God. That's very evident. By this, the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him exactly what John 3, exactly what Ephesians 5, 2 says. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us. 
sent his son to be the satisfaction, the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Pretty clear, isn't it? There's the imitation. There's the walk in love just as Christ. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us. And his love is perfected in us. That's just incredible. You know what he's saying? You can't see God, but if you find someone loving, you have a picture of God that you can see. Incredible. By this, we know that we abide in him and he in us because he's given us of his spirit. We have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. All oh, this is so gospel-rich and gospel-related. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. We have come to know and believed the love which God has for us. There it is, back to love. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. It's pretty important. By this, love is matured or perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. You know what he's saying there? If you don't walk in love, you have an expectation of judgment. Can I meddle a little bit? If you have pronounced and protected grudges in your heart of people that you're refusing to love, won't go to heaven because you're proving that you don't love God and the love of God is not abiding in you. That's exactly what he's saying here. We'll have confidence in the day of judgment if we love. That's why he says in verse 18, there's no fear in love, but, the, but perfect love casts out fear. Fear of what? Judgment. Because fear involves punishment. And the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. There's the imitation. There's the understanding. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment, verse 21, we have from him that the one who loves God should love his brother also. Pretty simple. Again, the opposite of love is selfishness. Remember the definition of agape love. It's a commitment. It's affection. It's caring about. Final phrase of verse 2 points us back to the Old Testament sacrificial system. These animal sacrifices were a pleasing aroma to God. That phrase is used 42 times in the Pentateuch alone about sacrifices that were a pleasing aroma to him. And the sacrificial death of God's son, this is almost unbearable to even say, but it's true. The death of, of the son of God was a pleasing aroma to the father. How? Because it provided atonement for the sins of those he came to save Oh, one of my favorite hymns, one of my favorite phrases in one of my favorite hymns is this. With crown him, many crowns. Crown him the Lord of love who triumphed o'er the grave, who rose victorious to the strife for those he came to save. Those he loved. His glories now we sing, who died and rose on high, who died eternal life to bring. 
and lives that death may die. Rose victorious to the strife for those he came to save. That's why particular or definite atonement is so precious to me as a doctrine. Jesus didn't die to just create this deposit of forgiveness in a bank from which someone can make a withdrawal. He died for men and women he loved. So precious. The gospel motivates us to love like Christ loved because he first loved us. And there's two categories of this love in the New Testament. It's very explicit, but it's very important. The range is impressive. First, John 13, there's a whole lesson on love others. L- love others in the church. Love your brothers. And there, we've talked about that in Ephesians chapter 4. But Jesus adds another layer. This is incredible. He adds another layer to loving and walking in love. Matthew 5, verse 43. You've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That was a common saying. Well, I'm to love my neighbor. I'm to love the people I live by, the people I work with, the people I know. But my enemy, which would have been at this juncture in history, the Romans, hate your, your enemy. And there was righteous hatred that they, they thought they could maintain. But I say to you, Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Again, the Romans Love your enemies so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. As God is gracious to everyone, so should we be in love. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? There's there's the principle in this whole passage. If you love those who love you, I mean, that's, that's simple, that's easy. Don't even the tax collectors do the same. Unbelievers can do that. If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. Therefore, and this is the context, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's not said in isolation. He's saying you are to pursue holiness and perfection like the Father by loving your enemies. Here's the hard rub. If we are to love just as Christ loves us, how does Jesus love? He loves the unlovely. He loves the unworthy. He loves the ungodly. He loves the unkind. And he loves the undeserving. That's you and me. Jesus loves the unlovely, the unworthy, the ungodly, the unkind, the undeserving. Do you? Do you care more about the souls of others than you care about the hurt of your heart? There's where it stings, isn't it? Do you care about souls? Do you, do you care about loving others in a way that is demonstrative as God loved us? Now, this passage is clearly about following the example of Jesus, and he loved the un worthy and the unlovely. He loved his enemies. How does this work? 
How does it literally work? Verse 32 of chapter 4. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, empathetic, forgiving each other just as God and Christ also has forgiven you. That doesn't exist in a vacuum. It follows on these words. Let all bitterness, wrath, and anger, and clamor, and slander be put away from you along with all malice or meanness, even to our enemies, even to those who don't like us or love us, even those who persecute. Are we following Jesus' example and walking in love and loving like he loved? I mean, the ultimate expression of that is his care and concern on the cross. He took care of John. He took care of his mother. And to his enemies, he says, Father, forgive them. Now, don't get lost in all the nuance of what that means. Can they be forgiven if they don't repent? Just, just think of his heart and attitude. He was being cruelly executed and he cared about the forgiveness of his enemies. Can we say it this way? There are many enemies of Christians in the Christian faith but no Christian should ever have an enemy. Can I add one layer to that? Paul said, follow me as I, what? Follow Christ. Follow me as I follow Christ. Parents, are you a good example to be imitated by your kids as you follow Christ? Are you loving like Christ loved and they see that? Husbands, to your wives, wives, to your husbands. He's going to come back to this idea of love when he talks about marriage, by the way, just hold that as a placeholder in your mind. Do, do, do we walk in love? Are we examples of our example? That's what Paul said. Follow me as I follow Christ. You can follow me because I follow Christ. You can imitate my example because I'm imitating Christ. Where does that manifest itself most? I think in that last phrase of chapter 4, verse 32. Forgiving others as God in Christ has also forgiven you. Not holding to anyone's charge what God will deal with them about. We're not judge. We can forgive them. Kind, compassionate, empathetic, tenderhearted, and forgiving just as God. Walking in love just as Christ. So how are you doing? If you're like me, you say, wow, this is, this is heavy, but there's grace for this. There's empowerment for this. And it's empowerment from remembering, this is, this is, the, this is the key to the whole thing. Look, look at, the, at the end of the verse. 
just as Christ also has loved you and given himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God is a fragrant aroma. Meditation, understanding, love for the gospel is what motivates us to be these kind of lovers of others. It all comes back to gospel thinking, always back to gospel thinking. Remember, Christ has forgiven you for far more than you will ever have to forgive anyone. And you are nearer to the sinner, the worst sinner you can think than you are to God. And yet he forgave us. Amazing. Jesus loved the ungodly, the unworthy, the unlovely, the unkind, and the undeserving. And we're to walk in that love. <laughs> we are to walk in that love. What kind of people would we be if that, if that were our aspiration? You can only do this because you love Christ. If you don't know the gospel, if you haven't ever believed and trusted Jesus to forgive your sins, there, the life that you will experience from being forgiven by God and believing the good news that he sent his son to be the payment for our sins is indescribably wonderful and indescribably worth it. I beg you, don't leave the building without talking to someone about that if that's, if that's your concern, if that's your care, if that's your interest.